Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening, we hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where W is for Wilson, Michael G. Wilson. My name is Thomas I. Butler and joining me is to explore the life and career of the co-writer of five Bond films, producer of 15 Bond films and the brains behind James Bond Jr. Consider him slimed. It's Mr. Brendan J. Duffy. <laughs> oh, nice. Yes, hello. So Michael G. Wilson is an interesting one, isn't he? I think when you think about the people behind Bond, you think Cubby, you think Harry. And nowadays, I think if you ask the man on the street, they'd probably be able to name Barbara Broccoli Abs- as the producer. Yeah, absolutely. Despite the fact he is the producer that has produced Bond films the longest, longer than all of them. Than all of them. Yeah, absolutely. Something we will uh, we'll, we'll discuss, I guess. Yeah, he's, I mean, he has the biggest. I mean, his, his shadow should loom larger than all the others. Mm-hmm. But I think by his nature... I think he's sort of happy to take a bit of a back role, um, a bit of a back seat. He's, he's a bit of an enigmatic in that sense. I would agree. absolutely agree. And, you know, 
it's a nice place to start if we start from his early life. It's difficult to yeah. find much about him, to be honest. Yeah. What did you find out? Okay, so well, he was born in New York, and he's the son of Dana, who was married to Lewis Wilson. He was an actor, and um, Lewis Wilson was the first actor to play. Can you guess which major? I know you, this. You know it. We, you know. We've it. talked this about this. <laughs> Batman, isn't it? Yeah. So Michael G. Wilson is the son of Batman. So they were both actors, um, Dana and Lewis, and they met at drama school in New York in the early forties, and then after Michael was born. They moved to California, so um, I think they split up pretty soon after that. Um, they got a divorce. And then when he was 17, when Michael was 17, she met Cubby. And we talked about this in the Cubby episode. Six weeks later, they got married after they, after they first met. It was a whirlwind, wasn't wow. it? And Cary Grant was the best man. Um, so when, when was that? Do you know? Was that sort of in the 50s? 1958, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, so... It, Talking about when he was, when Michael was young, he, he said he wanted to be a lawyer and not be involved in the film industry in particular. He said, because I knew how in, insubstantial the film business was. And obviously, yeah, he'd, he'd seen what it can do to people. You know, it chews you up and spits you out, I guess. So uh, growing up, it's, he's been with him. But um, in terms of having a new father figure, you know, that can always be potentially problematic, can't it? Um, especially at his age. He was 17, so... But they always got on, him and Cubby. He said, we were the best of friends, best friends. So, And we'll see that throughout this episode, I'm sure, how very close they got. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that's his early life. That's as much as I could dig up. I don't know if you found anything else. Obviously, then we go on to his education, which there's slightly more, isn't there? Yeah, there's a bit more to tell you about uh, his education. But, yeah, I mean, you, you talk about that sort of father figure coming in um, at that sort of age of 17 where you're sort of becoming a man yourself yeah, yeah. Uh, it's quite a father figure to uh, inherit i think cubby absolutely by all accounts yeah and it, obviously this gregarious italian background that he had um must have been yeah quite a quite a big change for for, for young michael g um th- by, by the way th- what does the g stand for did you get did you get as far as that oh i think it stands for greg <laughs> right okay <laughs> You look it up and I'll talk about his education. Yeah, okay. But yeah, I mean, just to say, I mean, he's in his 80s now, isn't he, Michael? I think he's just turned 80, hasn't he? When we I think he's 81. This. 81. Yeah. yeah. So looking back at his, his education, I can't tell you much about his um, his, his uh, high school education, but um, I know that he went to a place called Harvey Mudd College uh, to study electrical engineering uh, in the early 1960s. Uh, and he actually received a Bachelor of Science degree in electrical engineering. So you talk about his family being in the film industry. You, about electrical engineering is probably about as far away from mm-hmm. that as you could get, really. Yeah. Um, so you can see here, you, you know, he wants to um, plough his own, what's it, furrow his own plough or plough his, I can't plough his own furrow. I can't remember what the uh, which way around it is. Anyway, this place he went to, the Harvey Mudd College, it's a private college in California. And it's focused very much on science and engineering. And it was only founded in 1955. Uh, classes then began a couple of years later in 57. And the founding year, there was only 48 students, uh, one building and a dormitory. So Michael must have been like one of the first students through the door at this place uh, in its early years. But as a private college, you know, he comes from a wealthy background, I guess. They, they sort of were able to get him in there. But some of the other people that went to Harvey Mudd, 
include Jonathan Gay, the creator of Adobe Flash, mm. and Michael Tapper from the band We Are Scientists. Ah. So, uh, yeah, apparently it's got a very sort of rich heritage of, of people uh, coming from there into software. Right. So later, many, many years later, in fact, 2020, he got a Lifetime Recognition Award from Harvey Mudd College, and that's sort of to honour people who ha- go on to have a... Uh, dedication to the college and also to service to society uh, and he was also um, chosen to be on the association of board of governors there at, at Harvey Mudd as well so after leaving there he went to work um, uh, working in electrical engineering I believe but uh, not long after that actually switched completely made a complete about face went from studying uh, obviously from his engineering industry and he enrolled at Stanford University to study law um, and he got a Juris Doctor degree from the Stanford Law School. So basically, he's a doctor of law. Um, and, and the Juris Doctor, the JD, it's a, apparently it's a, a graduate entry profession, a graduate entry level professional degree in law um, in America. So it's the standard degree that you have to obtain to practice law in America. Mm. So yeah, that I mean, Stanford Law is 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 a, a private. Uh, another private university and that's in in california and it's considered to be one of the most prestigious law schools in the world um so quite incredible for for this guy um to go from electrical engineering do a complete right turn into law i think he sort of demonstrates um this a man of you know great intellect absolutely very smart guy Mm. who can turn his mind to whatever he wants to um, so that's what he did. Went to Stanford, studied law, got his uh, his his JD in law. And just an update on the middle name, it's Greg. Mm. Three G's, so it's Michael G G G Wilson. So yeah, in terms of his career, what did he do next? Well, he went and worked for the government for a bit, and then moved on to a firm that were in Washington. And they specialised in international law. So again, he's really doubling down on his knowledge and, and using that intellect. But he, he had a little foray into uh, into Bond whilst he was doing this job. I don't know if you're going to cover this, but it was during Goldfinger. And he says that he, Go for it. he said, I graduated, I came over to London. I drove out with Cubby to the airport with my mother. And he said, gee, I could really use some help with this film. It's too bad you don't have your passport. And I had it in my back pocket. So I went with him to New York and we went down to Fort Knox for three weeks. And that was my first taste of working in the film business. So obviously, you know, that wasn't enough to drag him away at this point. He still went on, like I said, to become a lawyer and went to Washington uh, and joined the firm. And he went to New York with that same firm as well. So it, just to just to take you back to Goldfinger, I've actually have got a little bit on this as well. Ah, great. Um, what, one of the jobs uh, when he was on Goldfinger, and it was at the Fort Knox stuff that they were filming when he was there. I think it was there for about three weeks. One of the, the jobs he was asked to do was stand in for Harold Sakata. So, so I imagine it would be for you know camera tests or whatever. And while they were waiting for Harold to come from his his thing, but one of the times um, he had forgotten to bring Odd Jobs hat with him, and he'd left it in the hotel room. Um, and so Guy Hamilton had to give him a bit of a dressing down, um, which apparently Guy Hamilton let, never, never let Michael uh, forget about. Um, so, uh, yeah, a bit of a baptism of fire there on, on Goldfinger. Yeah, no wonder he went straight back to law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he was, a, he, then he stayed with that law firm for, for six years. So starting to carve out a, 
a real career for himself in, in the law industry until Bond comes knocking, obviously, at some point. Yeah, I mean, six years is a long old time, isn't it? It's a lifetime mm. for some people. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, very much, uh, obviously, very established in his in his, in his his role there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's, let's move into the 1970s. So obviously, the Bond films are being made in the background uh, of Michael's life um, with his mother very much uh, dana involved with uh, the the production side of things very heavily she's sort of one of the uns- un- unsung heroes of the bond series and his stepfather cubby um producing them but it's not really until man with the golden gun in 19 i always get this one wrong 74, 74 isn't it yeah 74 um in which michael um is called upon by cubby to help out with a, a specific task which is the purchase of a seaplane. Now, the the seaplane that they use in The Man with the Golden Gun um, was initially going to be something else, possibly a boat or something. They said, we need something more exciting. We need a seaplane. And obviously they're filming in Thailand. So Michael has to lean upon his... uh, They lean upon Michael to use his international law skills to buy this seaplane in America and have it flown out to Thailand. Obviously, Michael's legal mind was used to cut through all the red tape and and, and get this seaplane out to Thailand for them to use on a film set, um, which just sounds like a mind-mogglingly crazy sort of bit of uh, admin that you'd have to deal with. But obviously, as we know on Man with the Golden Gun, that was the last film that Cubby and Harry made together. Uh, There was a lot of, um, uh, you know, tension between the two producing partners, mainly because of Harry's extracurricular activities, which had left him in a very precarious financial uh, predicament, um, which he had to extricate himself from. And he basically ended up selling his part of the shares of E.ON to um, MGM or United Artists, as it was at the time. So when this whole divorce process was going on between Harry and Cubby, Michael, who is now at this stage a specialist tax lawyer, he helped to represent Cubby um, alongside Cubby's longtime uh, attorney, a guy called Norman Tyre. So that was where Michael sort of starts to become really integral to the story of Bond. And so with Harry Saltzman out of the picture for the next movie, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977, Cubby brought Michael into the fold on the Bond films to be a special assistant to the producer. And one of the first tasks Michael was given was to negotiate with the Ian Fleming estate about how they could adapt The Spy Who Loved Me. Because if you remember when we talked about Fleming, I think, or The Spy Who Loved Me, um, Fleming made it very clear. He stipulated that they could adapt. They couldn't adapt the book, but they could use the title. Mm -hmm. So there was a very strict sort of legal do's and don'ts on how they adapt that story because that story was a very, very controversial book when it was published. Um, so, yeah, that was Michael's role there. And, and and then when on The Spy Who Loved Me, this is where we also see Michael stepping in and using his creative mind on the movies as well. So he becomes a key advisor on the films from this point onwards, becomes very involved, and it's Michael who, flicking through a magazine, a Playboy magazine, finds the Canadian club advert, which has the man jumping off the mountain, that inspires the opening sequence. So you can see there, you know, Michael's creative mind um, is is turning and it's having a direct impact on the films. And, you know, as we say, it's one of the greatest Bond moments of all time. Yeah. So then from that point, he was promoted to executive producer on Moonraker. And again, 
using his mind and his knowledge. He, he played a very key part in the pre-title sequence on Moonraker as well. He found BJ Worth, the skydiving expert that would become one of the most integral stunt people on Bond. Um, and then working the sequence out with John Glenn. Uh, you know, it's the scene where they jump out of the plane and he had to fight over a parachute with with Jaws. Um, that we, that was all Michael G. Wilson's idea. They worked the sequence out with John Glenn. They found the parachutist. And then he was also very uh, uh, importantly helped to find the lightweight plastic camera lenses needed to be able to shoot that free fall sequence. And interestingly, I also found out that Michael helped to shoot some underwater footage. Apparently, he's a very good underwater swimmer. He helped to shoot some underwater footage for The Spy Who Loved Me for a scene where I think there's an anaconda. I think it's possibly in uh, in, in Drax's lair and there's like a snake, isn't there? Um, but there was some under, underwater footage there that Michael shot, but that didn't make it into the film. Uh, but that takes us up to uh, 1979. Um, and it's really then in the 80s where where he really steps up. Ah, he definitely does. He puts the puts the camera down, you know, and then goes and picks the pen up. And this is where we see him collaborating with Richard Maybaum. Starting in uh, for the 1981 film For Your Eyes Only. And um, they had, um, judging by what I've read, they seem to have a really good working relationship. Um, you had sort of the old school methods of Richard Maybaum and then the more modern approach from Michael G. Wilson. Um, Richard Maybaum said, when we start out, we do a very full treatment, sometimes 50 or 60 pages long. I've done many films with Cubby and he likes to know beforehand what it's going to be. He said, sometimes Michael will write the first draft or I'll write the first draft and we give it to the other fellow and argue about it. There's an awful lot of arguing that goes on. But you know what they say, if collaborat- collaborators don't argue, then there's one collaborator too many. Um, so, yeah, it, it seemed like Maybaum was definitely stuck in his ways. And um, John Glenn said that Maybaum wrote his stuff in longhand and then typed it up uh, on the typewriter. But Wilson was using a word processor even at this point. Um, right. So they definitely had different methods, which meant when it came to a rewrite, Richard Maybaum was really resistant about sort of cutting scenes and stuff. Whereas obviously Michael G. Wilson is a bit more flexible to that sort of thing. But he talked about his approach on writing for For Your Eyes Only. Um, And Michael said, I don't like the use of gadgets. We've seen too many of them. There's always a cheat. Usually you set up a gadget that can only be used in a very unique situation that wouldn't apply generally. What I like best is when you set up a situation that the gadget is perfect for and Bond really needs it. Just as he takes it out of his pocket, it's knocked from his hand and plummets nine stories down to the ground. Now what's Bond going to do? That's the fun. And if you remember back to our Fioras Only, this one, they really went back to the Fleming novels and wanted to create that classic Bond and took a lot from from Russia With Love. Is that the one they, they used as reference? That was the major one. Yeah, I think they always sort of that. That's the one they always the say. The blueprint was want to get it back in back back to that style. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously moving forward, <laughs> Octopussy in nineteen eighty three. That kind of goes out the window. And Michael G. Wilson said uh, about this. He said the first three Bond films were certainly classics of the cinema, and I have no qualms about being compared to these pictures. I want to see Octopussy listed in that league. Octopussy is a spectacle. It's basically still a fantasy product, but more realistic. That's got to be a promotional quote because, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But 
when we get to a view to a kill in 1985, he steps up again. And so he's still co-writing with Richard Maybaum, but he's promoted from executive producer to co-producer with Cubby on this one. So this is his entry into being that he is top dog essentially by this point, which is strange, isn't it? Because I still don't think of him in the same league as Cubby. And yet 1985, that's nearly 40 years ago. Yeah. When is it? What year is it now? <laughs> it's 38 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Which by this point, Cubby was doing it for 23. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, crazy. In terms of writing this one, he said, for all practical purposes, we've been out of material for the past five films. <laughs> we will bring in the occasional Fleming element from the books, which haven't been used in the films. But that's not much help when you get down to basic plotting. And and Maybaum, this is again where he sings these praises of working with Michael. He said, he said, Michael is very receptive. He's the only man I've actually worked with on the Bonds. Other writers have come on before or after me, but never with me until Michael. He has lots of ideas and we like each other, which always helps. So I guess it, it was more of a harmonious period during the 80s, isn't it? Regardless of what the end results are. You know, there seemed to be more stability across these films in the 80s. You've got John Glenn directing every film. Same yeah. writing team. Yeah. Um, Roger. Roger. To a point. Yeah, yeah. to a point. Um, and I think, actually, when you look at those th- first three Michael G. Wilson penned films, so Fury's Eyes Only, Octopussy, a view, a view to a Kill, something that unites them is a move towards that sort of five minutes into the future mentality, isn't it? It's technology. Mm-hmm. You've got the ATAC in For Your Eyes Only. Um, you've got the um, whatever the plot of Octopussy was. <laughs> but like, um, it's a more technolo- technology based uh, situation. And then also with um, uh, View to a Kill, you've got the whole Silicon Valley thing. You yeah. can see that they're thinking about technology and how it affects the world and how we're moving away from this sort of classic Cold War type tale. Yeah, absolutely. So that meant moving to living daylights they had a a new problem to deal with like you said roger's that stability once he's gone and they don't know who's coming in right until the last minute as we've covered before and he says that when they wrote it you know they didn't know who's going to take on bond he said the script was finished and we were well into pre-production before dalton was cast so tim played bond as he saw it in our script this time having seen his ideas there was no doubt about it the films are influenced by the way the actor plays bond we saw that Tim has a certain way of doing things. And that that shows when you when you watch The Living Daylights, there's scenes that Roger, there are Roger-themed, Roger-flavoured scenes in uh, Living Daylights for sure. He offered some advice as well when Dalton took the role because obviously it was such a late stage and it was, it was all very rushed through. So uh, he, he said that Dalton would need to promote the film and the publicity is going to be immense. So he... he tried to prepare him for what was coming and then as we move to the last film of the 80s we have a we have an issue because the initial outline of license to kill michael g wilson and richard maybaum came up with but before they could really get going and developing that script the writers guild of america went on strike and that meant richard maybaum was unable to continue so wilson he actually finished it on his own so there's largely a lot of michael g wilson stuff in this one um and he has compared this to Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. I think we talked about that on mm. the License to Kill episode, which was then remade 
uh, into it was a remake of Fistful of Dollars. So he said he's used those themes very much so in License to Kill, and that's what helped him finish it. And um, that's take, taking the, the bad using the bad guys to t- turn against turn them against each other and take themselves down, isn't it? That's yeah. the sort of the so, core yeah. core theme of Jimbo. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's his his eighties. Obviously, he's really established himself throughout that. But um, moving into the nineties. Does does he put the pen down? What what happens after that? Well, I mean, the nineties is really where Michael G. Wilson um, comes to the fore of of Bond. Um, I mean, the start of the decade uh, is is very the the company Eon, uh, the Bond franchise is in a really really sticky situation. Uh, legally, uh, which we've covered at length before, but um, basically, after *License to Kill* happened, um, Michael G. Wilson started to work on a plot outline for *Bond 17*, and he was working with this newcomer writer, Alphonse Ruggiero. Basically, they knew, or it felt like at the time, they were moving away. They were going to leave John for a whole new era. Leave John Glenn. Richard Maybaum behind. They were moving into the nineties. They needed to do something new, so they brought this guy, Alphonse Ruggiero. Um, and they started working on it, but unfortunately, due to um, legal actions, thing everything was put on hold. Uh, you can go back and see our sort of Golden Eye episode for more detail on on what was going on there. But this guy Alphonse, he, he had worked on Miami Vice and a show called Wise Guys. So you can sort of see this sort of slightly different in, in, influence on um, on Bond coming in. And there was actually a, po- a poster advertising Bond Seventeen at the, on display at Cannes Film Festival in nineteen ninety. Thanks to Mark Edlitz's great book, The Lost Adventures of James Bond, there's quite a lot of information out there about this 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 treatment that Michael G. Wilson did with Alphonse Ruggiero. And Ruggiero does an interview with, with Mark and he said, We started our meeting and Michael couldn't have been nicer or more giving as a partner. I was a little shocked at that. I thought he might be a little dictator, dictatorial because this is his and his family's baby and he's done so many of them. But instead, he was very collaborative and supportive. Michael is great. He had a million ideas. He was fun to be in a room with and talk to. He's a sophisticated guy who has lived with the life of James Bond for many years. And when we ended up doing the script, we wrote it at his house. And this is a lovely little insight, a little bit of detail about the process they they would do. Um, He says he would make a loaf of bread every morning. We would talk as he made the bread. Then he would put it in the oven and later we would use the bread for sandwiches for lunch. It was great. It was very homey. He lived out in Malibu. It was inland, so there was no one around. And Michael is a very good hiker, so we would hike and we would talk. We would make his bread. He has also one of the best photography collections in the world, which we'll talk about later. But I think what you can, sort of can grasp from that is that attitude. He, he's come, he hasn't come from a film world, right? Mm-hmm. He's come from the real world. He doesn't exist in this Hollywood bubble. And the only person, the only Hollywood person he really knows is Cubby. And Cubby has also has, from my understanding, you know, like this homely way of doing things, mm-hmm. very down to earth, very people person. Um, so I think that 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 image of working with Michael on this script is just uh, it sounds idyllic, really. So after they finish their work on Bond 17, Dalton's third Bond movie, a couple of writers called William Davies and William Osborne were then hired to turn that into a screenplay. And that uh, you can read about that on online as well. But um and then there was another Bond treatment also commissioned at this time. And this was Reunion with Death by Richard Smith. And again, you can read all about that in, in Mark Edlitz's 
excellent book. Um, but you're basically legal issues between United Artists, MGM, Dan Jack delayed the production on Bond 17. It took until December 1992, sort of nearly three years after the last Bond film, that the rights were settled and the lawsuits were settled. Um, and so MGM, who are now being run by this this bank, basically Credit Lyonnais, they then began to, d- to develop Bond 17 with Dan Jack and Eon in 1993, so four years later from the last Bond film. So, But in between this fallow period between Licence to Kill and GoldenEye, Michael G. Wilson kept the Bond name alive by spearheading the creation of James Bond Jr., the one and only animated spin-off of James Bond. laughing brendan yeah I, <laughs> great did you ever watch this when it was on there no i didn't no. no did you no i was sort of aware of it it was sort of around around in the ether at the time um but i never really I, I think i watched a few episodes at the time but it was just never on um the when i was watching tv so um but yeah james bond jr was created and this is a, an animated spin-off it aired on US television from uh, September 1991 there were 65 episodes made 25 minutes each in length wow and with Michael G yeah i know and uh, Michael G Wilson worked with producer Andy Haywood writer and producer Robbie London and they together wrote the show bible and Robbie London again talking to Mark Edlitz in his book said that Mike talking about Michael G Wilson said Michael turned out to be a terrific boss and collaborator I really enjoyed working with him and respected him creatively. He had written some of the Bond movies, so he brought a real writer's sensibility to the table. The initial meeting involved relating what was important to him in terms of protecting and serving the franchise and what his general expectations and concerns were. I was reasonably knowledgeable about Bond and all its famous signatures, but I recall Michael going over a lot of that with me. It was certainly fun to hear it from the source. I felt I had bonded creatively with Michael. I remember he took me out on a celebratory wrap lunch after the completion of the Bible and he introduced me to the legendary Cubby Broccoli, the father of the James Bond movie franchise. So they did all this work, 65 episodes. I think it was the people behind the Ninja Turtles cartoon that perhaps they turned to and they were the creative people that went on to do it. But it just it just never really gelled. I mean, it's quite hard to take the idea of Bond and package it as a kid's show. Yeah. Um, a lot of the things that you think about Bond, the the, the, the violence, the cars, the drinking, um, you can't have all this. No. The sex, the sadism, all this stuff. It doesn't work mm-hmm. in, in a teen setting. Um, so you can sort of, unsurprisingly, it didn't continue. What is a surprise is that they've never put it on streaming. Yeah. Um, because I think they—that's something they could put on on Amazon, right now. Definitely, you know, yeah. People would watch it. I'm sure yeah. they would. So in May 19, back back to Bond itself. May 1993, MGM announced Bond 17 was back in the works to be produced uh, and based on a screenplay by Michael France. Uh, but sadly, with Cubby Broccoli's health um, deteriorating, um, it, Barbara Broccoli uh, at the time said that um, her father was taking a bit of a backseat in the film's production. 
And so Barbara and Michael, Barbara Broccoli and Michael J. Wilson took over the lead roles in production while Cubby oversaw the production as a consulting producer credited as the presenter of, of GoldenEye. And sadly, he died. Cubby died seven months after the release of GoldenEye. But uh, Brosnan, Pierce Brosnan was the man who was brought in. They had him lined up because of the, the situation they'd had with Timothy Dalton previously. See our Brosnan episodes for more detail on that. Um, but Michael uh, G. Wilson, he saw that GoldenEye, one of the things that he sort of stipulated was that the movie needed to be post-Cold War. And also using, because of his brain and his mind, he was also key to putting the idea of the internet within that movie. And he actually had to explain to Jeffrey Kane what the internet was. Um, so, um, yeah, very smart guy. And talking about the pressures of GoldenEye at the time, Michael G. Wilson said, we have a successful series and of course, you're always on the line every picture. The next picture we do will be on the line again. You're never not on the line. You can't ever relax. You can't ever sit back. This picture is probably more important for the studio than it is for us in the sense of financial impact it will have. Um, so yeah, then Cubby died in 96. Um, and paying tribute to him, Michael said, in our office, we sat across from each other. He was my mentor and my dearest friend. Um, and uh, then they talked about Bond coming back um, they said that they vowed to continue the series. Barbara and myself had to view our working life after his death as a new beginning. We also, we have inherited what legions of fans around the world think of as something of a holy grail. We also have the pressure that goes with it. Cubby never cut back on budgets, skimped on the sets, or first-class action sequences. He always had high production values. Barbara and I have pledged to produce the films in the same way. I mean that's absolutely huge pressure for them both, but they, <laughs> unbelievable. But, yeah. the, but they've had such a great mentor. Yeah, but at this stage, I mean, after GoldenEye, you see Michael stepping away from any any sort of writing duties, mm. but he play, obviously playing a key part into um, finding out what Bond is, figuring out who Bond is, and this is where we talk. They we talk about them getting the, the writers together to figure out a Bond Bible, perhaps inspired by the bible that they wrote for the james bond jr um um and and they went on to produce obviously all the, all the 90s bond films together um and we've covered these films at length so just as a potted history you know tomorrow never dies was fraught with difficulties um they faced another legal battle with kevin mcclory at the time when he was trying to get things off the ground with sony so that was something that michael and barbara dealt with together on the world is not enough they introduced robert uh, uh purvis and wade um, I can never, it's Neil Purvis and Robert yeah. Wade and my, at the time uh, Michael talked about not missing out on the writing he says when you're a producer su supervising writers you get your oar in the water there's enough going on to satisfy that um, and one of the things that Michael introduced on that film on The World Is Not Enough was the chainsaw helicopters um, that was a Michael G. Wilson uh, idea that went into the movie hmm. then we've got Die Another Day and talking about working with Michael, um, the MGM exec at the time, Chris McGurk, said Michael was very cerebral, very thoughtful, very wedded to the tra tradition of the Bond movies. He comes at things from a more intellectual standpoint, saying that Michael can be the voice of reason. So that's how he sort of, he says that Barbara is very passionate, Michael's very intellectual, and that's the sort of the yin and yang of them, yeah. the two of them. And it's at this stage on Die Another Day that we have Michael's son Greg being brought into the fold. And so more on, on Greg in a minute. And on Die Another Day, Greg Wilson would take notes at story meeting 
uh, story meetings and then adding his own ideas where appropriate. Um, and on Die Another Day, one of the big important decisions was Lee Tamahori. Um, Barbara and Michael backed him all the way. They were the He was the director they wanted. MGM didn't want him, but they backed their man for better or for worse and later found themselves distancing themselves <laughs> from the whole um the whole decision talking about that uh, sorry talking about the challenge after dine of the day they said we actually had to sit down and write the next film and it became abundantly clear they had nowhere to go without being frankly science fiction and that being the case it became harder and harder to come up with a plot and situations in that vein so that's that takes us up to 2002 and yeah but the, before we dive into the next sort of big Bond era, there's something you can't talk about Michael G. Wilson without mentioning, and that's his cameos. Coffee? Medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko fi dot com forward slash james bond a to z where you can buy us a coffee for just three pounds or for three pounds a month thanks for listening back to the show is that all it does enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with BetMGM at your fingertips every play and every game matters more than ever place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so he has made lots of cameos and speaking, both speaking and non-speaking, both credited and uncredited. His first, do you know what his first was? Right, let me think. It's going to be on... No, I don't know. Fiore's only, maybe? Goldfinger. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. As a soldier in the Fort Knox scene. Oh, can you see him? Uh, sort of. It, it's it's, like, right. it's quite dubious, but there, there's a video on YouTube that compiles them all together. It's worth having right, a right. look. But, I mean, it, it stands to reason. It, I mean, he was there. We know he was there. So, But he has made a cameo appearance in every Bond film since 1977. Wow, uh, which means he's he's second in appearances to Desmond Llewellyn <laughs> in the Bond films. Here's here's a list of them, and it's a really it's. I think we did this in I think it was last episode or the one before. Little Easter eggs that Bond fans can spot. What were we talking about on the previous episode? We were talking about vodka martinis. We were also talking about um, Universal Export. That's so it. Like it, yeah. may, it yeah. has no impact on if you don't know. Absolutely. There, but, um, and yeah, this is a, yeah. and this is another one of those. It's it's great and it's it's nice to see him pop up um, when you're not expecting it. So yeah, the, he's at the Pyramid Show in the Spy Love Me in the audience. Um, right. He is in Moonraker. He's in there twice. He's a tourist in Venice on the bridge in the background. Right, it's a hard one to spot that, and he's also a NASA technician. Um, he's a priest at a Greek wedding in Fiora's Only. Yeah, that was the one I was thinking of because he's got like the 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 priest yes smock on, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah, he's a member of the Soviet Security Council and a tourist on a riverboat in India in Octopussy. Um, in A View to a Kill, he's just a voice. Uh, he's a voice when oh. Bond enters the San Francisco City Hall. Okay, uh, Living Daylights. He is an audience member at the Vienna Opera House. That's he's at quite visible House. in that one. Yes, yeah. yeah. Is is he sat with his wife in that one? Oh, I'm not sure. I th- I think his wife's in that scene as well. Ah, yeah. License to Kill. He's a DEA agent in the pre-title sequence, um, right? And he has a line: "If they hurry, they might be able to catch grab the bastard." Right. So Goldeneye, he is the hand. Of a um, operative that is seen grabbing Chuck Farrell's ID. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he's a member of the Russian Security Council. I was, I was <laughs> yeah. gonna, he's round the table, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Tomorrow never dies. He's on the video conference with Carver, and that's yes. where he delivers the line: "Consider him slimed." Slimed. Yeah. Yeah. He works in the casino in Baku. In the world is not enough. Right. Um, he is a tourist in Havana. In Die Another Day, but he's also okay. credited in this as General Chandler. So he's yes, because in the Die Another Day, at the end scene with um, oh, the Mister, oh, what's his name, Michael Madsen. Yeah, yeah, he's in one of those he generals is. in that he ring, is. isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Casino Royale, another very prominent one. You can probably remember this one. 
Go on. So he's the chief of police. If you remember where they sat outside. Yes. Yeah. With Mathis. Yeah. 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 Um, Quantum of Solace is a man reading a newspaper in the hotel lobby. Cool. Okay. He's quite visible in that one. Skyfall, he is in a deleted scene at the funeral. He's a mourner. Um, Spectre, again, very visible. He's having a conversation with C. Right. Um, and in No Time to Die, any any guesses? Do you remember where he is? Yeah, this? I know this one. He's at Blofeld's party, it, birthday party, he isn't is. he, in Cuba? Yeah. yeah. So he's clearly, a, he's clearly a, a Spectre agent, isn't he? He's been, look, he's been in all these. He's an undercover agent, isn't he? He's not like that, is he? Or he's Stan Lee. He's, he's the Watcher. <laughs> the Bond world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's it's great to spot him. Um, so it's nice to see. Like I said, there's a YouTube video with them all compiled, but I think it's much more fun to just watch the film and then when he pops up, you can see him. It's a good drinking game, isn't it? If he yeah. pops up, have a, have a shot. Yeah. So into the Craig era. Now, um, after Die Another Day, obviously for, for one reason and, and many, many others, it was time for a reboot um, with Sony behind the films. Michael G. Wilson knew at the time with Barbara that it was clear they needed to go back to basics. And it, obviously he's there drawing on his experiences that he's had on the past. You know, he went from Moonraker to Fiore's Only. He knew it was time to pump the brakes to go back to the books. And that's what they did. They, Mike, uh, Michael and um, Richard Maybaum had explored the idea of doing a young James Bond or an early career James Bond in 1986 while they were developing The Living Daylights. But Cubby at the time nicked the idea. He said no one wants to see Bond. Um, as an amateur or something. Yeah, as an amateur. Yeah. He's got to be like fully fledged. But... No, they stuck to their guns. They knew it was Casino Royale. They'd recently got the rights back to the book. Casino Royale it was going to be. Um, and at this stage, Piers Brosnan uh, had priced himself out of the movies, basically. He was looking for more and more money. And Casino Royale just lent itself to a fresh start for Bond. So they needed to go and look for another Bond actor. Now, Daniel Craig is reportedly was Barbara's choice right from the start. Um, but Michael admits that that they, they looked at a lot of people and I'm sure that's Michael just doing his due diligence, right? Making sure, have we seen everyone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't let's just look, go for the right person. So they looked at a lot of other people while they were working on the script because if, if you remember, they what they had Daniel, but Daniel would, wasn't prepared to sign on until he saw the script. Yeah. So while they were working on the script to make sure it met his approval, they saw lots and lots of other different actors. Uh, but Daniel, Daniel Craig ended up winning the gig um, and Michael and Barbara become the producers that we know today um and they make five james bond films uh with daniel craig and so by 2015 michael had been working on the bond films longer than cubby had so at this stage michael's been working on the bond films longer seven by seven years more than cubby ever did do which is quite incredible Mm. really and so at this point, um, I mean, I don't really want to go over the history of Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, No Time to Die. It's all very well documented. And also because it's so close in history, it's hard to really pick out which bits are Michael and which bits are Barbara yeah. and who's done what and who's done this. I think the further away from time we get, we'll, these things will become clear. But what, uh, in 2015, reflecting on working on the Bond films for so many years, Barbara said, and uh, this ca- this came from uh, AJ Chowdhury's book, Some Kind of Hero, 
Barbara said Michael had many careers before the film one. He has an engineering background, he has a scientific background, and he's also good. Uh, and he's also good, so he's good on construction, on making things work. Michael has a tremendous art, amount of knowledge. He's a renaissance man. He has the brains of a scientist and the heart of an artist. Which I think is a great, um, mm. great quote there. And Michael himself, um, talking about Bond, he said, writing and producing Bond films, I'm so thankful. How many other people have this chance? The big thing you get out of it is that for a rather small contribution to society, we have a huge public awareness and interest, and that's rather odd. There are lots of people, doctors, lawyers, research scientists, that have absolutely no recognition in life, yet are doing so much that is really important. Here we are doing something that's a matter of giving people a great experience for a couple of hours in life, and we take on tremendous media interest. So how can anyone in my position complain? And... In 2021, at the No Time to Die premiere, Barbara Broccoli paid tribute to her stepbrother, Michael G. Wilson. And as we played in, I can't remember which episode it was, but I played the clip from that premiere. But it, she sort of hinted that it might be his last Bond film. Mm-hmm. She, that was the intimation. She was thanked her brother for working on, on these films for so many years, being a great producing partner. It felt like possibly the end of an era but um you know he's still working on the bond films as far as we know um in an interview in 2022 with variety um they're talking very much about the future of bond and what what was going to happen next and in that interview um it says that michael himself has even written a tv show uh, that they're him and barbara are trying to set up somewhere mm. so he's still you know he's still being creative at, at this age still like uh, very much involved with um, with Bond at this stage. What will happen with Bond twenty six? I don't know. Yeah. I think he's been involved with the with this reality TV show as well, uh, which I imagine is keeping him busy. And he was very very present at the um, the, the rest of the um, sixty years of Bond events. In fact, I I interviewed him um, at the um, the the Christie's junket, and you know he's very much still involved. So yeah. uh, who knows what the future holds? Um, but be, beyond um, Bond. What what else do we know about Michael? Like what his interests and stuff. Um, are? Well, he's got they've got other producing credits. So along with Barbara, they have produced the rhythm section. Um, I think we previously spoke about that as a quite a big flop, quite a disappointment for them. Um, but he's also executive produced uh, independent films as well: The Silent Storm, Nancy, and Radiator. Have you seen have any, seen any of these? No. He executive produced Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, which is, of course, the biographical Gloria Graham uh, yep. uh, film, which is directed by Paul McGuigan and produced by Barbara. And obviously, along with Barbara, he has uh, a love of the stage as well. So they were involved in um, producing Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Chariots of Fire in the West End, um, Once... Strangers on a Train, Love Letters, Othello. Um, so yeah, that that that's clearly one of the passions of him as well. But but most of all, it's got to be the photography. Did you know about this? Yes. Yeah, I understand he has one of the biggest collections in the world. Absolutely. Or like one of the most prestigious collections. Yeah, so he's an expert on 19th century photography. 
And he said, my love of photography stretches all the way back to childhood. My father was a keen photographer and wherever he went, he would invariably carry the suitcase that contained a mini and larger. He would set up in a bathroom and print his negatives. As a child, I was fascinated by the process and took up photography as a teen, which has remained a constant source of pleasure throughout my life. So yeah, in the, in the 1970s, he began to collect photographs. Um, to, at this point, he was already collecting antique books, manuscripts, and also books and pamphlets that were printed in Europe before 1501. So, you know, he was he was really into that. But he, well, he was talking to his wife and an old college friend. And his old college friend was married to someone called Weston Naif, who was a curator of prints and photographs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. So that sort of inspired him to start collecting transfer is collecting to photographs so he's already collecting things but he moved it across to photographs and when he started it was at a time where it wasn't really the in thing wasn't you know nobody was doing it galleries weren't really showing photographs at this time I guess due to snobbery I, I assume at this at this point and auction houses were just starting to to have them as well um, and it was a, a London auction that he actually bought his first batch of 19th century prints and I mean, his collection spans the entire history of photography and it's more often than not, it's out on loan to different galleries. Um, He works very closely with the Tate. So along with his wife, Jane, he founded the Wilson Centre for Photography and that is a facility that researches the history, aesthetics and the preservation of photographs. So yeah, there's a major passion of his and um, he actually did a special 007 edition product of, of with Leica he teamed up with Leica and they yes, did a, se- this, a yeah. set of 25 images and he curated this and um so there were four four people were each had a, a Leica camera to take photos while while they were making their time to die so you had Daniel Craig had one Greg Williams who of course he he wrote the the book did he did the uh die another day um f- onwards didn't he yeah He's done the yeah. Bond on set. That's it, isn't it? That's what it's called. Yeah. Um, Nicola Dove and himself. So um, they're on the, the Leica website. There's some really good photos, actually. And each one's got a different flavour. And he said, when curating a portfolio, opt- opted for black and white images in the traditional style. Leica cameras and lenses produce excellent results in this medium. Each photographer not only brought their unique vision to the project, but also a personal relationship to the subject. He said that Daniel Craig's got a very particular eye. And he said he's taken some wonderful behind-the-scenes shots focused on the people who help help us bring Bond to life. He said Greg Williams is, of course, a world-renowned photographer who has worked with us on Bond for many years. Nicola Dove is on set full-time to document the making of the film. She's forever watching those special moments. And he said, I just snap at anything that moves. Um, very very humble there because his his photos his photos are very good as well. So he's also a fellow of the Science Museum in London. He's a trustee for the Carnegie Institution for Science, Harvey Mudd College, and Santa Barbara Museum of Art. In 2010, he was given the Royal Photographic Society's Award for Outstanding Service to Photography, and that give, uh, goes along with an honorary fellowship of the society as well. Along with Barbara, um, they are the founders of the London Screen Academy. 2014, along with Barbara, they were given the Producers Guild of America. 
the David O. Selznick Achievement Award in Theatrical Motion Pictures. 2013, they got the BAFTA Award for Outstanding British Film for Skyfall. 2008, they were appointed Officers of the Order of the British Empire, so OBE. And then in 2022, they were awarded CBEs, which is Commander of the Order of the British Empire. So, I mean, that that really wraps up the, the Michael's involvement in Bond. Um, but it's worth talking about the next generation of Wilsons because um, Michael isn't isn't the last one working on, on Bond. He, like you said, he's married to his wife, Jane, and they've got two sons. Uh, the older brother is David G. Wilson. I think the G stands for Greg. Um, and he, up until 2017, was the cr- head of creative and business affairs for Eon Screenwriters Workshop, and as well as the vice president of global business strategy for Eon. Um, but he left the company to work on, um, he's got like a video game venture uh, that mm. he works with, and he's like creating experiences in, in uh, augmented reality and virtual reality and stuff. But David, he started out as a screenwriter and assistant producer, and he worked um, on uh, as an assistant director on lots of Japanese films um, in, in Tokyo, lots of sort of small, low-budget films. Um, and then on Bond, he got um, credits as an assistant, uh, additional assistant director on GoldenEye, a computer network administrator on Tomorrow Never Dies, a systems administrator on The World Is Not Enough, and he worked on product placement for Die Another Day. He has an assistant producer credit on Casino Royale and also a script editor uh, credit on Quantum of Solace. But like I said, he's very much been involved with the video games as well and was the executive producer on GoldenEye 007, GoldenEye Reloaded, Bloodstone and also 007 Legends. Um, But uh, after Casino Royale, um, and the, and his experience with the video games, he sort of uh, decided to move out on his own. Uh, and he's now a venture capital angel investor, a startup mentor, and the CEO of a platform called the Shared Experience Art Machine. Um, so that's David Wilson. But Greg Wilson is the one that seems to be being groomed for uh, big things at Eon. And as we mentioned, Greg was first involved on Die Another Day. Uh, where he was credited as a development executive. And talking about his time uh, on Bond, he said, I joined Eon officially just before Quantum of Solace. I was freelancing for my first couple of Bond films before I realised that this is something that I definitely wanted to do. It's been an amazing thing to be part of. I like working with my family. I don't know if that's for everybody, though. At first, it seemed like the mafia. Once you join, you can never leave. But they really are wonderful people to work for. And Bond is the thing that demands most of our time and resources. But it's nice to work on different projects in between. So on Bond, he's had um, some sound design credits. He's also had followed in his father's footsteps and had some cameos as well. Uh, He's in the bar, the Turkish bar in Skyfall with the Scorpion. And he's also in the scene where M and C meet uh, Inspector as well. Um, and then on Casino Royale, Greg was assistant editor. So you can see there he's sort of finding his feet in the film industry, very much like Barbara did when she joined Eon. She did lots of different roles in publicity and, you know, assistant producing, all that sort of stuff. So then Greg went on to be associate produce, assistant producer on Quantum of Solace, associate producer on Skyfall, Spectre and No Time to Die. He's also associate producer on Film Stars Don't, Don't Die in Liverpool and then exec 
producer on the rhythm section. And talking about his position as an associate producer, he said the main function as a regular producer is to solve problems and technically the producer will raise the financing, supervise the production, approve the key decisions and then make sure the film's completed and has distribution. But I'm doing a different sort of role to all those things. Mine is more about trying to always make sure the movie is better by trying to anticipate future problems and guessing what's going to be an issue. And so it's primarily about problem solving and troubleshooting. And a lot of my time is spent having one-on-one conversations with heads of departments, visiting them, getting them to trust me as someone they can confide in. And he's more becoming more and more involved in public events. Um, and like even just over the last couple of years, he, he appeared on the official No Time to Die podcast doing interviews about the production mm-hmm. of the film. And I've met, uh, I've personally met Greg a few times now. When I went to the set of Spectre um, to do a second unit set visit, I met Greg then. He was one of the people that showed me round. He was very much hands-on there. I interviewed him. He was lovely. He's quite a young guy, actually, I'd say. I don't know how old he is. He's probably mid-40s, um, but very charming, very, very friendly. Um, and then I met him again at the Christie's auction when he was interviewed. When I interviewed Michael G. Wilson, it was him and Greg together mm. and they interviewed and they were very, very, they're very good partnership, really. Greg's very sort of um, very media, media trained, very friendly. And, it, and and then at the Bond, 60 Years of Bond event at the um, BFI, uh, he was on one, he was one of the stage um, sort of talking heads as well. So you can see he's more and more being put in the public eye as a, a figurehead for Bond, um, which with Michael G. Wilson being 80 now, it makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah definitely. Because Barbara, what's she? She's 60s herself. Yeah. So you, I think you get the sense that Barbara probably still has a few more movies in her in a yet, um, whereas Michael perhaps is probably ready to sort of step step back a little bit from it and Greg is probably the man to do it. Yeah, feels sort of like where they were at in the mid-80s, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much so, very much so. So, I mean, taking it back to right what we were saying right at the start, Michael, he's been on the Bond films longer than any, anyone else now, any of the other producers on the on the films. Yeah. But he is a bit of an enigma. What do you think after, you know, after this episode, what, what do you think you, you've learned about Michael? <laughs> well, he's an intelligent man and that intelligence has meant that he can keep the franchise going to this day yeah i think something i've learned as well is that it's it's not about just just about keeping the franchise going it's about keeping it on an even keel Mm. and i think that's something that perhaps he has been uh an instrumental part of not to say that barbara doesn't as well yeah but he has this sort of logic sort of business mind um that means he can make sort of big decisions but like like what was that quote from barbara he's got the the mind of a um the the brains of a scientist and the heart of an artist i think that just sort of sums mm. it up really nicely doesn't it yeah um he's got the brains to figure a lot of this stuff out problem solve um make the big decisions um and also you know make bold decisions as well i mean the die another day post die another day ruthless need yeah. needed to be done yeah. Really, for for the for the continuation of the franchise. Um, yeah, and also you look at Goldeneye as well. I mean, that's obviously one that we are huge fans of. 
Hmm. Um, and yeah, Cubby was involved, but this was the one where they had to take over the reins and make a lot of interesting decisions, right? Yeah. Um, they could have, they could have done, you know, they could have followed the path of license to kill and gone gritty and, and done that, but they, they made the decision at that stage to go and make the greatest bond film of all time. Yeah. Yeah. And also something as well that I know that like, you know, some, some people aren't, um, a lot of people aren't that, that, that thrilled by, but if we talk about no time to die and that decision to kill bond at the end. Yeah. When, when you actually think about it, it's actually a really bold, artistic and commercial decision to make. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If you think about a franchise like Bond that's been going for so many years and makes so much money and has so many people relying on it, actually to, to, to kill your character, whether you think that's a good idea or not, yeah. is really, really, really bold. Yeah. And I think it takes someone with vision, producers with vision, to be able to say, you know what, Marvel, you know, they kill characters and bring them back all the time. But for Bond to do it at the end of a movie where yeah. Bond cannot come back from, I don't know. I I feel like that's a bold decision for them. Um, and, you know, Michael and Barbara, whether you like that decision or not, it's it's a unique one that they made. It is. Maybe it is. And maybe it, it is Michael's. It, it, I mean, if it is, and it does seem like it could be his last. What a what a way to sort of tie a ribbon on on his tenure. Exactly. Yeah, and clear the slates for whatever comes next. Exactly. I think there's yeah. no better way of clearing the slate, is there, than 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 making that decision. So if that is the case, I mean, it could in ten years, twenty years, when they look back on it, you could say. That was his. That was his crowning, crowning moment. But we don't know. No, we don't know. It's just speculation, isn't it? Anything else to say about Michael? Not really. Not really. No. I, but I, I just think he's underappreciated. Absolutely. And just this idea that he's written a TV show, <laughs> you know, he's still like, you yeah. know, he's still got that fire to to create and and to do interesting things. I just wish him well for the future, I guess. If he does step down from Bond, then, you know, he's earned he's earned the time off now, I think. Absolutely. He can focus on the, the his photograph collection. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, let's wrap things up there then. Um, so that's been our episode of Michael G. Wilson. That means that there are only a couple more episodes left to come. We'll be doing You, you Only Live Twice probably as our next episode and then our x y and z episode and then we may just do a little wrap-up uh episode after that as well but um yeah thank you for listening to this i hope you've enjoyed this it's a, a slightly different from what we usually do but uh that, that i mean this is the last of the producers that we've done we've done cubby yeah we've done harry we've done barbara now we've done michael so um yeah i guess if uh That'll be the last one for a, for a while on the producers. But if you have anything you want to let us know, you can email the show at podcast at jamesbond uk, or you can find us on social media where, Brennan? At jamesbond z on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. So if you have anything that you want us uh, to, uh, to ask us for our final ever episodes, um, then please email it over uh, sooner rather than later. Um, anything you want to add any audio clips you want to send us anything that you want to contribute uh, will be great gratefully received um, and so on that note it just remains for me to say that James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week ciao the James Bond A to Z podcast 
is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy, with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Key West Drug Enforcement. Roger, sir. AWACS to Key West. Key West Drug Enforcement, please come in. If they hurry, they just might be able to grab the basket. Mr. Wallace, call the president. Tell him if he doesn't sign the bill lowering the cable rates, we'll release the video of him with a cheerleader in the Chicago motel room. Inspired, sir. And after he signs the bill, release the tape anyway. Consider him slimed. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.